Hi, I'm Dr. Sarah Howard, and welcome to the Pure Animal Podcast. On today's episode, we're talking to Dr. Kirsty Sexel about the impact of COVID on the mental health of pets. Dr. Kirsty Sexel is a boarded veterinary specialist in behavioural medicine in the Australian, American and European colleges and adjunct associate professor at Charles Sturt University, Wagga Wagga in New South Wales. Kirsty is fascinated by animals and why they do what they do. She pioneered puppy preschool and kitten kindy classes, teaches a distance education course in behavioural medicine for the CVE of University of Sydney and presents nationally and internationally at conferences, runs webinars, writes textbook chapters and has written a book called Training Your Cat. Hi, Kirsty. Thank you so much for joining us today. How has your day been so far? Oh, my day is always busy. And thank you for inviting me to be part of this podcast. Really looking forward to it. It's our pleasure. I'm really looking forward to chatting with you as well. And I'm sure that our listeners are looking forward to hearing all about your expertise. Um, But before we get into the topic of the day, which is discussing the mental health of pets and how it's been impacted by COVID and the lockdowns that we've been having, I just wanted to understand a bit about your history and your background, um, why you wanted to become a vet and how you ended up working in behaviour and became a behavioural specialist. Oh, that's a, that's a day and a half. <laughs> but let, let me summarise it a little bit. I was not one of these children that grew up thinking, I want to be a vet, I want to be a vet. I didn't. Um, I had pets as a kid, loved them. Uh, I think much to my parents' um, dismay because they didn't think dogs should be indoors, let alone cats, and I kept bringing them indoors, but <laughs> they ended up being outside animals. And really, I think at high school, I was just moseying along like most people. Suddenly, it came time to do the high school certificate. And I thought, oh, well, I better put in some study. So I did. Obviously, I passed. And um, in those days, you got the Sydney Morning Herald as a newspaper, and you went down the list of all the different faculties you could have got into. And I went to A, B, C. And by the time I got to B, I thought, oh, veterinary science. Hmm, that sounds interesting. So I picked it. Didn't tell my parents about it. They were kind of horrified that I picked that science. Isn't that a, a job for boys? Oh, um, wow. But the minute, well, remember, you know, this was a while ago that yeah. I graduated. And in my year, mostly they were they were males. We had less than yeah. a third of females in my year. Yeah. Uh, having said that, the minute I walked into vet school, I loved it. So from the very first day, I knew it was what I needed, what I not only needed to do, but wanted to do. So I was really lucky that I fell into a, a job I really liked. I loved being in general practice. I went overseas, worked there for a while. And while I was living in the UK, that's when behaviour took its hold because that was when I found out that more animals were euthanized every year because of their behaviour than died mm. from metabolic diseases, cancers, you know, every other disease combined, and we were killing more animals because of behaviour. And I had no knowledge about behaviour, and I couldn't believe I'd spent five years at vet school, and I knew nothing about the major cause of death of the dogs and cats I was treating. Yeah. yeah so then I started looking into who does deal with behaviour problems. They were mostly human psychologists. So when I came back after five years to Australia, I went back to university, having sworn never to darken the doors of another <laughs> university again. Um, and did a Bachelor of Arts in Behavioural Sciences with a major in Psychology, and that's 
where it all started. I started hanging around with people, annoying them, pestering them overseas and saying, well, how do you know? How do you know? How do you know? So I hung around the great luminaries like Dr. Kathy Haupt, Dr. Andrew Lucia, um, Dr. Karen Overall, and I was really lucky that they all let me just kind of hang around and pester them and at the end of the day, they told me I should be doing it. You know, if I liked it so much, I should become a specialist. So by default, back to university. <laughs> <laughs> so how many years so was it all up of university at the end? Oh, I don't need like to think about it because I went <laughs> back and wrote a thesis on the, on puppy socialisations yeah, right. and uh, long-term effects of puppy socialisation and training. I did that because I was then promoting that puppy preschools were the best thing since sliced bread and I thought, oh, I don't really know this, so mm. maybe I better prove it. So, mm-hmm. oh, I don't know, I guess university probably at least 10 probably more years with all of that, plus then I had to do all the study to become a fellow of the Australian New Zealand College plus a diplomat of the American College by examination. So, yeah, a lot of years of study, really, of but mostly I loved it. it yeah. Was just, you know, it was things that I just didn't know enough about and I think the world didn't know enough about it, so it was time to put my money where my mouth was and um, go back and invest in my education. Oh, and it's always a worthwhile investment. And I think if you're really passionate about something, that study can seem like a pleasure. Absolutely. You know, I used to read massive textbooks on aeroplanes, especially uh, about <laughs> neuropsychology and neurophysiology because I just thought, wow, this is interesting. Yeah. Wow, I never knew this. Nobody taught me this at vet school. So Yeah, right. And did you ever consider working in human psychology after you'd done your further studies? No. You know, I guess we all um, go through midlife crises. I probably had mine earlier than a lot of other people. Um, And I thought, yeah, maybe I don't want to be a vet anymore. But everything kept coming around to utilizing my vet degree as well as my psychology degree. So it was the, um, I guess, just the right time at the right place where psychology and behavioral medicine were starting to evolve. Um, There were people who were specialists already elsewhere. But, yeah, I just sort of combined the two and I'm really, really pleased that I did because I do think having a degree in human psychology is is really advantageous mm. in dealing with behavioural medicine. Um, not that I use that, um, you know, we don't psychoanalyse uh, clients, but it's just useful knowledge that I don't think you get from just a vet degree. Oh, right? yeah, absolutely. I do think, even though you say you don't like to psychoanalyse your clients, I do think my experience in practice that having an idea of psychology and some education around that can help with talking to clients and supporting them in making decisions and supporting them in difficult times. Um, So I'm sure that it's inadvertently benefited your clients in that way as well. Well, I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) I hope so. Yeah, no, because I do think, you know, one of the things that people often think you do vet because you love animals and I think you really need to respect animals more than love them. Um, but really you have to like people because that's who you deal with. Unless you become a surgeon and you just sit down yes. and operate on animals and don't yeah. deal with anybody. But realistically, our job in the veterinary profession is always dealing with people and helping them and supporting them with their animal, regardless of whether it's um, you know, a physical disease that we can see or a mental illness that um, we can see the results of but not see the disease itself. And you're currently working at Sydney Animal Behaviour Service. Did you actually found that company? Yes, I did. Yes, I thought so. Um, Can you tell us a little bit more about that and the cases that you see most of? 
Yeah, well, I was in uh, general practice for a while. I was a partner in a in a large multi vet practice, and when I started doing behaviour more and more, the two just weren't really compatible as such because it was very hard to vaccinate a dog, and then people would ask you about their behaviour. Go well, actually, I need a couple of hours to talk about this, and they go, no, 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 you just just help me now. And, and behaviour is complex. Mm. You no, know? it um, it's not the quick answer that we that. I think people expect you to give. And so it was just impossible um, to sort of, impossible is probably the wrong word, but it was very difficult to then say to people, look, if I give you this advice, I'm giving it as a GP, but now I'm going to charge you more because I'm a specialist. (laughs) I have to come back and spend more money. So that's when I stopped doing general practice because it was was a logical thing. Uh, In general practice, I couldn't spend three hours with every patient, whereas in my own business, that's what I do. I spend up to three hours with every patient and that's, that's what it takes. So that's when I sold my share in the general practice and um, start my own business in the animal behaviour service. And that's been going almost 20 years now. Wow, congratulations. (laughs) And how many other vets work with you in the Sydney Animal Behaviour Service? Um, At the moment, I've only got my resident working with me. Um, So it's um, uh, my resident, Dr Grace Sertel at the moment, is there and we work together. It's not, um, I also see cases at Animal Referral Hospital, but really um, I rely on my practice manager and other people to help run the business. We just basically see the cases and yep. help people um, understand their animals better. So it's a small practice, it's not meant to be, and I don't actually want to be supervising five or six yeah. other vets or residents. I think behaviour is a very much a one-on-one and more and more um you know, overseas as well as here, the specialists are really regarded as veterinary psychiatrists, and I think that that doesn't lend itself to having you know ten, twenty vets doing it. Maybe yeah. for somebody who wants to take it on, but it isn't going to be me. <laughs> I yeah. like working in a small practice. I, I like working with my residents, and you know, we have lots of students as well from the universities around Australia, and I think that's a nice combination. Yeah, it sounds lovely and intimate <laughs> and I'm sure that your clients really appreciate being able to only see sort of one of one of two of you rather than having so many different people to see because it's, it's, it is similar to having, a you know, one psychologist or one psychiatrist that you always see and mm. and having multiple vets in one, one practice, like you said, probably would defeat the purpose of, of what mm. you're doing really. Yeah, and I think even in general practice, because I get referrals, the 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 people who seem to be most satisfied with the veterinarian is when they have their veterinarian that they mm-hmm. can always refer to. When you ask them who they see, oh, whoever's on, um, but you know sometimes they don't know what's going on. And I do think that we need to think carefully as our as a profession whether um, whether that is the best way to give service to our clients when there's so many vets that anybody could see that the clients don't even remember their names. Yeah. And I. You know, maybe that's my psychology background, but I I like to know who my doctor is. I don't want to just walk into oh whoever's available. Mm. Um, if it's just a you know repeat prescription, I don't care. But if I really want healthcare for me or my family, I want that to be the same doctor. And I think that's just a human nature thing. So in certainly in, in veterinary psychiatry or behavioural medicine, I think we do need that one-on-one care where the client um, actually knows who they're going to see and. We develop a report with them, you know, mm. and it doesn't matter whether we see, you know, I'm sorry to answer the other part of the question, whether we see dogs or cats or whatever species, um, you know, that rapport of knowing who is going to treat your 
your little fur baby um, or your cow or your sheep mm-hmm. or, you know, whatever, I think people like to have that confidence. So yeah, certainly in behavioural medicine, I don't think it's, um, for me anyway, it might suit other people, but for me, I like to be the one that... Uh, kids and my patients so I know all about them. Mm. Oh, that sounds really lovely. So obviously we we are actually recording this in December 2020 and I don't usually like to talk about the time when we're recording, but we're coming to the end of 2020, which has been a really challenging year for lots of people in lots of different ways due to COVID and the implications of that. Something that I know I'm really interested about, there's been so much discussion of how um, COVID and the lockdown and the financial stress and all of the disaster that surrounded the pandemic has impacted the mental health of people, but there hasn't been as much that I've seen in the media about how it's impacted the mental health of animals, particularly those companion animals that are, you know, suddenly having their owners or their their pet parents at home with them all the time. So I'm really curious to see whether you have seen an impact of COVID uh, in your patients, whether you've seen an increase in people wanting to see you. Um, Just uh, really curious to see what you've seen really this year. Mm. Yes, COVID I think has had a big impact on um, the humans of the world and also therefore their their pets. Um, It's Interesting, there's been a couple of papers just recently being published overseas on the impact on what's changed in the human-animal interactions. And I think some of them certainly relate to Australia. I'm not sure that all of them do because I guess living in Australia, we've been really lucky, really lucky compared to what's happening overseas in Europe and America and the UK. Um, But I think... There's there's a couple of things that I've noticed. We are busier than ever, and I suspect part of that is because people were at home more with their pets so that they noticed their Mm. behaviour more. Mm -hmm. Uh, And, you know, if if you are noticing their behaviour, and now because they're not going to work, you know, they can find – they're working, but they're working from home, they Mm -hmm. can find that extra time to come and see me, whereas mm-hmm. if you're doing nine to five, Monday to Friday, finding three hours off in that schedule yeah. wasn't impossible because obviously we saw cases all along, but it became perhaps easier. Or I think the other thing that happened is that they now could see their dog and their, or their cat or whatever other animal they had in the household. And wow, well, maybe its behaviour was different. I do think that uh, the impact on on dogs has been great, I think also on cats, but most of it is that our our pets, generally if we go to work, they have the day to themselves. They can sleep, mm. they can lie around, do stuff. All of a sudden, especially if you're at home, you want to interact with your pet. If you're getting stressed, you want the cat to sit on your lap or, you, mm-hmm. or, you know, we were encouraged to walk the dog, walk the dog, get out in the fresh air and walk the dog. But if your dog isn't used to being walked five times a day, that was really tough on the dog. Um, And then I think the other thing that happened, certainly in my household, the dog then got expectations of being walked many times a day. And then when the world changed again, she was like, well, hang on, how come we're not going out now? And would get herself quite 
It's just because she wasn't going out for mm. walks. I also noticed a lot of dogs when they were out in the street literally throwing themselves on the ground and refusing to walk because they, oh, really? you know, there was lots of cartoons and memes going around where the dog was saying, well, hang on, I've been out already. Yeah. Well, I'm not going out again. Yeah. It's too hot or it's too cold or too wet or whatever they're yeah. going to think about. Uh, and I think it was really hard on some of these animals. I think cats who are used to sleeping and resting a lot, suddenly with somebody there impacting on them, you know, 24-7 yeah. is hard because I have seen more cat patients in the last couple of months than I had seen for virtually a whole year before. And I think that's because, again, these cats were getting stressed, so we're seeing a lot of um, urine spraying and marking and aggression between the other cats in the household because we weren't allowing them to lead the life that they mm. had been used to living. And, mm. and I think when our lives changed because... Humans are social critters, um, and we couldn't meet with our family and friends, and couldn't do the things. We got really stressed, and I think some of that stress, the the animals and that we lived with, also became stressed. Not only because of our stress, but I think the fact that their routine had been totally, you know, mucked up. Mm. <laughs> and that, you know, we all like routine. We all yeah, like creatures just that have all of a sudden. It yeah. isn't the same. I think it's really tough. Yeah, and then like you said, when the routine, when they get new, used to the new routine with the five walks a day, all of a sudden it changes again. And particularly yep. for the poor people living down in Melbourne, they've had, you know, two major lockdowns down there and I can only imagine it must be um, probably even harder down there for the mm. for the cats and dogs that are having their routine yeah. change so dramatically. Absolutely, and I think it, you know we we often have discussions about this. But I think if you're neurotypical um, developmentally, that you're marking all your goalposts as as a dog or a cat in, in your development, you're probably going to have some resilience and you're going to bounce back from that. Mm. But if you already have an underlying anxiety disorder and Certainly studies indicate that at least 20% and perhaps more um, dogs actually have an anxiety disorder and they don't have this resilience. It's harder for them to bounce back yeah. uh, because, you know, you get constant change of routine. And remember in, in Australia, we started before COVID with bushfires, with all sorts of other um, natural disasters, if you want to put that in inverted commas, mm. if they're natural or not. But we've had a lot of disasters and a lot of people who were stressed and a lot of changes in our environment and COVID was probably the icing, the icing on, the on the cake. Yeah. That really, it, and it because it became a pandemic, initially we were still planning holidays yeah. and then we couldn't and whatever plans we had, we couldn't do them and then the borders shut and the borders opened and the borders shut. And, yeah, I agree. Those lockdowns are really difficult for people to handle. And I think they, the animals found it very hard as well. Yeah, and I would think particularly those people who have children at home who are all of a sudden being homeschooled and absolutely love children, but they can be, how do I say it, maybe a bit more invasive on a dog or a cat's personal space. Um, if they're, you know, they're not at, not the impulse control perhaps isn't there. So I wonder if in those households, the mental health of those pets was even a bit more disrupted. Mm, I totally agree because mm. again, if you know, kids are busy. <laughs> That's what they are. And if they go to school, there's that time for that dog yeah. or cat to have a bit of a break. Respite. <laughs> and all of a sudden, it's no. You know, yeah. they're not going to school. And I think we saw a lot of animals that were hiding and trying to get away, oh. but. Yeah, you know, it was hard on on the kids. It yeah. was hard on the parents. It was hard on the pets. 
And I guess that was always the lighthearted thing when you saw, you know, I guess we've all seen, you know, really world-famous people conducting Zoom meetings or interviews and the kids would rush into the room yeah. and wave around the background, and, you know, and even all the Zoom lectures that we've attended with conferences and things, inevitably someone's child walks in and does something or the cat hops up on the computer while they're giving the lecture. Um and that, I guess, made it all feel a bit more human and, oh, it's not only me that's having these issues, everybody else is having the same thing. But, yeah, I think your point to the kids um, is, is, you know, homeschooling, I know most of the parents I spoke to found that really, really hard. But for the pet, that's also hard because, as, as we sort of mentioned, they don't get the time to rest. Mm. And people often forget that animals need up to 16 hours a day to rest and sleep. Mm. And um, that sounds good, doesn't it? Really, that's like a, almost <laughs> like a, a newborn baby. They need so much sleep. <laughs> but that, that's what they need. And if yeah. you don't get that, if we become sleep deprived, we become yeah. irritable. And I yeah. think that's certainly what we've seen in our and our patient population as well. So you did mention anxiety disorder. Um, have you seen if you're wanting to perhaps diagnose a, a mental illness in a pet after seeing them? Um, sort of struggle through COVID or anything related to the lockdown. Have you seen a high incidence in anxiety disorders or have you seen um, any other sort of mental illnesses develop or mm. become more prominent? I, I think we're probably seeing more of them for a couple of reasons. Um, I think people are spending time with their pets and so now they're recognising that yeah. Gee, maybe there is a problem there. Um, I don't know that the percentage per se has increased. Nobody's really looked at that, but I think that maybe their inability there to cope with these things um, mm-hmm. is hard. Uh, I, one of the things I try and stress with my clients is that fear is a normal response. We all should be worried about things. Anxiety is a normal response. Mm-hmm. I mean, if we're not mildly anxious about COVID, um, then that's probably not, you know, neurotypical or not. Mm-hmm. But when it tips into an anxiety disorder, when your inability to cope with that, that's when you need help. And I think that's what we're seeing perhaps more of in dogs and cats purely because people are recognising it more mm-hmm. um, and maybe they recognise it in themselves that they're, they're getting a bit worried um, and maybe their dog or cat is getting a bit more worried about things as well. So in and of itself, um, fear and anxiety, depending on the context, may be perfectly appropriate. You know, I'm, I've got a fear of heights. Well, that's perfectly appropriate because I don't want to go base jumping or abseiling <laughs> and that's fine. I just don't do those sort of things. But I don't have an anxiety about it and I certainly don't have an anxiety disorder. So I can manage to go up tall buildings without a problem. I just don't want to be up there without anything <laughs> underneath me. That's yeah. the bottom line. So, you know, it's, it's some of these things we've got to recognise. Where does it fall on the spectrum of things? Um, so, yeah, I think we probably are seeing them more, but maybe we as, as a human population are getting better at recognising it. Mm. Years ago, we didn't really want to talk about or recognise mental illness in people. Mm. It was a taboo subject. Uh, and I think the lovely thing is that now we talk about it, there's lots yeah. of famous people, whether there's sports people or entertainers or politicians will now talk about their anxiety, their depression, yeah. um, their OCDs, 
and it's become, it's no longer taboo. It is mm. just part of being a human. And I think that has really helped us accept that our pets can also have mental health disorders. I think you're absolutely right. I, I think in my lifetime, there's never been such a normalisation of people who do struggle with their mental health and the vulnerabilities that some people um, have shown when they're, they're sharing so publicly the struggles has only benefited everyone else in the population and and thankfully has benefited most pets as well. If we can recognise the signs more and can seek help, then hopefully we might start to see the incidence of, of mental ill health in pets start to plateau, maybe even decline in the future. Um, mm. Wouldn't it be nice? Um, it, it would be. It yeah. would be. Then we'd have to breed the right animals too. Another scenario of genetics and yeah. epigenetics and all the rest of it. But, yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I agree with you. Absolutely agree. Um, but recognising it is the first step. And if we recognise it, then we can take steps to mitigate it. And that, I think, is the important thing that we're now seeing in, in the human population which is um, is also translating, as you said, to the um, to the pet population as well. Yeah, definitely. And you, you mentioned previously that in the last sort of two or three months, I think you said you are seeing more cats come into the practice than ever before. Mm-hmm. We've discussed and in a few other podcasts that I've recorded um, an approach to managing behavioural issues, if you would say. I, I'm not sure if you like to call them behavioural issues or mental ill health in dogs. We've discussed that a fair bit, but we've never actually touched too much on the behavioural issues that we see that are a symptom of a mental illness in cats. So just briefly, are you able to outline how your approach to dogs and cats might differ or the similarities that there are? For my interests as well as everyone else, I'm sure, um, we'd really love to know. Mm. I think the big difference between dogs and cats when they have um, mental health issues is that dogs, on the whole, tend to be more overt in showing the signs. So if you have a dog with separation anxiety, let's say, most of the dogs will vocalise, so somebody hears them. Most of the dogs will be destructive, so you notice that your front door's missing when you come home, um, <laughs> or the carpet's been shredded, or your backyard looks like a tornado has gone through it. Um, they're much more overt in showing it, and that, I think, is a real good thing for dogs because people hopefully don't punish them but recognise that this is an animal that's really distressed. Cats, the big difference, I think they're more covert about it. So if they get distressed, they hide. Mm. So if you have a cat that might have um, you know, noise phobia, for instance, they will go and hide. They go and hide under the bed or under the house and people don't even know that they're suffering. But they may mm. be suffering just as much. But because you're not seeing the overt signs mm-hmm. um, as frequently, they don't get treated as much. What they will get treated for is if they start urine spraying, that's mm-hmm. a really good way to get people's attention. Oh, yeah. look, these freshly ironed clothes. Mm. That's why I can't wear them yes, again. Um, or your bed's wet or mm-hmm. you know, those sort of things. They, you know, oh, gee, there's my computer. Oh, oh not gosh. working anymore um, because the cat's sprayed on. Mm. They will, those are the cats that get noticed. The cat that over grooms, but, you know, yep. suddenly you find puffs of hair everywhere and the cat is bald. 
those cats will get treated because people notice those overt signs. If the cat suddenly starts attacking you or attacking the other animals mm-hmm. in the household, they get noticed, they get treated. Um, and so, but it's the one that, ones that hide I really worry about because they, nobody notices, nobody sees them. And it's like the dog that has separation anxiety, but it vocalizes, but nobody's at home to hear it and no neighbors around to hear it. So it might be telling you stuff, but there's nobody around to report it. And they're the animals I feel sorry for because they don't get treated because nobody knows. Simple as that. If we do get to see them, the treatment is pretty much the same. You know, I I always try and teach um, my students and that's that the way you treat a behaviour problem is the same way as you would treat any physical health problem. Um, you have to do a full workup, um, make sure that there isn't anything physically that's contributing to it. Pain, I think, is really, really, really underrecognised, and a lot of our patients that exhibit behavioural issues uh, will often have concurrent pain. And there's no doubt that um, if we're in pain, we're much more irritable, we're much snappier, Sleep deprivation, I already touched on that before. But, you know, we know the three main reasons for uh, an animal exhibiting a behaviour is genetics. That includes epigenetics, so Mm -hmm. what happened, you know, not just the simple Mendelian genetics we were talked about, but epigenetics. Um, What it's learnt from previous experiences, good, bad and different, and the particular environment it's in. So I talk about the 3M approach. We have to um, manage its environment. Um, modify its behaviour and uh, and often use medications because if these animals have neurochemical imbalances without medication, they're not going to get better. But we also have to monitor them. It's not just good enough to say, I want you to do X, Y, and Z, but you need to monitor their ongoing health, just like we do with people with mental health issues. Mm-hmm. So the 3M plus 1 approach is what I use, and I don't think there's much difference, really, in what we do with dogs or cats. Mm-hmm. Um we perhaps don't do as much um, formal um, behaviour modification as we do with dogs in the sense of um, with dogs we tend to do meditation type exercises oh, really? where we teach the dog yeah to well it's close to my as close to mindfulness as I can get mm, but wow. you know it's basically teaching them to relax on cue um, most cats don't do that but we certainly um, you know use the same passive relaxation techniques. We get people to whisper to them to just decrease their arousal level the whole time. Mm. And so, yeah, it's pretty much the same. Um, Their environment management is really important. I mean, with cats, one of the big things is we don't recognise their environmental needs, that cats um, need a place to rest, Mm -hmm. different from a place to sleep. Uh, just like us, we come home from work, sit on the couch, but then you go to bed. So you need places that are safe to rest and to sleep. Cats live in a three-dimensional world. They want to be up high. Most houses in Australia, uh, in the modern houses, are not equipped for a cat to do anything but counter-surf, which people don't like, but that's the high surface that they're going to get onto or they're going to get on um, top of the bookshelves and things. I mean, now they can't even go and sit on the TV because we all have the flat-screen TV. So oh, course, you know, consistently yeah. we're taking away places yeah. where cats would traditionally be. The fridge hasn't turned flat yet. Um, <laughs> but that's, you know, that's about the only It's pretty high. Of it. <laughs> yeah. Um, so we need to manage their three-dimensional world. Um, we need to recognize that cats don't eat next to where they drink. So people often tell me that the cat's drinking out of the dog's water bowl or the pot plants. 
or that running cat, yep, because if you're a small predator like a cat, you certainly do not want to kill your prey next to your water source because you might mm. contaminate it. Um, so there's lots of really, really simple things yeah. that we can do that just accommodate the cat's world and probably biggest thing that we can do is make its litter box attractive to the cat. Um, everything we do with litter boxes is for humans. We make them small. If you look at the amount of space a cat normally uses to eliminate, um, we're really talking about you know one and a half times the length of a cat, including the tail. And there's no litter box uh, in Australia that's commercially available. They're now making them overseas for the cat. But where do you put that in your house? Yeah. Uh, that's the problem. Um, and the type of litter, most of the time, we don't want to be cleaning that litter tray out all the time, so we only scoop it out. Well, who wants to use a dirty toilet? You and I don't, but we expect the cat to. Yeah. Um, we put the cat into a covered litter tray. Well, you know, once it hasn't, hasn't been pinned out for a week or two, that ammonia in there is oh, pretty yeah. unpleasant, and then people wonder, gee, the cat's not using its litter tray. No, I wouldn't either. Yeah. You know, it's... Um, just some common sense stuff. And once we manage the cat's environmental needs, often a lot of these anxiety issues can be resolved just because we listen to what the cat is telling us. Yeah, wow. I mean, I certainly was never taught all of those different things when I went through university. And you're right, they just do seem so simple. And, you know, honouring the cat's natural instinct and needs um, if they were living in their, you know, original natural environment, that's what they would have needed. So I really like those tips. Hopefully people will be able to, our listeners will be able to take those on and whether there's vets listening or nurses or even pet parents, hopefully all the cats in the world might learn um, to benefit from these tips. Kirsty, I know that we're sort of running short of time, but just quickly I was wondering if you do ever reach for any alternative therapies, any supplements or herbs um, in your treatment plans if you use them in combination with pharmaceutical medications or ever reach for them first? Just interested to see where they might fit in. Mm. Yeah, look, I, I guess I would use them more as um, adjuncts to therapy and the reason for that is because I'm in a referral practice. So mm-hmm. by the time the dogs and cats come to see me, most People that have tried just about all of those things beforehand. And if it's worked, that's great. That's been fabulous. But if you really have a severe mental health issue, they just may not have been enough. Mm-hmm. I do like using pheromones. I do think that that's uh, helpful. But, you know, with really severe cases, they're kind of, as I say to people, I need to build the cake. Then that's the icing on the yes, cake. Yes, absolutely. We do use supplements, certainly diets and things. But again, it depends on what the underlying reason is. And, and I guess, as I said, um, quite honestly, the cases I see have usually been to, if it's a dog, they've probably been to two or three dog trainers. They've been to see two or three vets sometimes. They've um, tried all the other things. And if it hasn't worked, then they come to see me. Mm-hmm. And I think that in and of itself is a bit of a welfare issue because perhaps they should be coming to see me, you know, if the first two or three treatments didn't work rather than I've tried this for three years, four years, five years, and then you're my last hope. Mm, No pressure on me. Um, (laughs) And I think the same thing with with these supplements and um, diets. You know, there's a lot of really good diets now that have been shown to help with cognitive decline. Um, Certainly there's diets that help puppies develop um, 
uh, their brain and they can think better. So, yeah, there's a lot of products out there that can be helpful, but I guess it goes back to the severity of the problem. And if it is severe, they're, they're helpful, but they're adjuncts. Um, yeah, absolutely. To the, to the patients that I see. Yeah. yeah, sure. All the other things that you mentioned are um, so important to to take that holistic approach and, and mm. really a- attack at all angles for the best result. And just lastly, Kirsty, are you able to share your tips for how we might be able to help support the mental health of our pets during this transitional time? Mm. Well, I think the first thing is to respect the pet um, and its needs. We sort of touched on that with cats, recognising what they would, uh, what they need in their environment, I think is really important and mm-hmm. working with that. I think we also need to reward the behaviours we want um, and forget about punishing animals if they do the wrong thing, um, you know, because it's in our minds that they've done the wrong thing, mm-hmm. not in the animal's mind. But I think just as importantly, give them time to rest and play. And that is one of the things that I've really noticed that with um, us as well as our, our pets, they don't have that time to rest. They're not getting the time to sleep uh, and they also need time for recreational exercise and playing games. And, and I think if you can put a routine into that, which would be the, the last R, so <laughs> respect, <laughs> reward, rest and routine, then it becomes a very predictable world and a lot easier for the pet to manage when our routines and things change. So start with those four hours you're going to do really well, I think. I like that. I think that I might implement that in my own life too. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, great. Well, thank you so much for giving up your time today, Kirsty. I know that you're a very busy woman (laughs) and you've probably got lots of things to get on with um, for the rest of the day. So I really appreciate you taking this time to chat with us. And there's some wonderful things that I know I will definitely be taking from the podcast and I hope everyone else will too. Well, thank you for inviting me. I've really enjoyed it. And uh, hopefully we can make the lives of all of us better um, by making the lives of the animals better. This was the Pure Animal Podcast, and I'm Dr. Sarah Howard. If you want to find out more about Dr. Sexel and the Sydney Animal Behavioural Service, please follow the links in the show notes. If you enjoyed this episode, please jump onto iTunes and give us a rating and review.